Space. Some regions are vast and empty. Other areas we call closets. Fortunately, Kevin from the Container Store has answers. Hmm, right. Kevin, what gives you the power over space? I'd say Alpha Customizable Closets. With free design and Alpha's adjustable shelving and drawers, I can create space in any size closet. Kevin, master of space and closets. Or just Kevin. Plus, right now, save 30% on Alpha and installation and earn up to $500 in credit through February 10th. At the Container Store, where space comes from. Where is that music coming from? Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. To kick off the Valentine's theme, my guest for this morning is Dr. Saida Disley. As the founder of the modern-day Jade Egg Movement, Dr. Saida inspires women to dare into their desires and claim their sexual sovereignty. Dr. Saida and I will be having a conversation about her life's journey and her latest book in her global offering of the daring project titled Desire. Good morning, Dr. Saida. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. I'm doing fantastic. It's a gorgeous sunny day here after many, many days of rain. So it's like a blessing this morning. (laughs) Fantastic. It's wonderful to have you on the air with me. The last time you were here was last February, Valentine's theme as well. And we were having a conversation about sexual sovereignty. I'm telling you, every time when I talk to you, I have to start off with a cold shower that morning. So to kind of get me ready for some exciting conversation here. Fantastic. Well, at least you're awake and alive and rejuvenated. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Ready to go, right? I am excited about today's topic, Desire. It is very insightful and interesting read. Congratulations on its release. And I love the size of the book, the way it looks. The beautiful thing about this book is that you have so many quotes in it, which is really, really cool. And I have to say this, though. This is interesting. I'm just teasing you here. It is rated PG-13 when you have a bunch of Mother Teresa quote in there. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, but that was very intentional for me to put her in there because Uh um, one of the desires, as you read, has to do with rapture. And I felt that she really represented that in Mm -hmm. a very strong way. And I know it's probably blasphemous to associate her with desire, and that, that was a very important choice for me. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. Just beautiful. For the benefit of our new listeners, let us start by getting to know you a little better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Thank you. So I'm French-Canadian born, and I grew up on some of the toughest um, First Nation reservations in the middle of Canada. So that's the part that speaks English. But where I grew up, they actually didn't even speak English. So my second language was actually Ojibwe. And then I learned English a little bit later um, in my childhood. And um, and then I got into dancing, uh, professional dancing with the Rowan Peg Ballet at a very young age. I think I started at eight years old. Um, and then fast forward, I had... Um, a pretty strong what's called near-death experience that was quite violent when I was 20, which we spoke about in the last interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of those things, those different, those are very different elements 
three who I am now, which is a person who loves people, which is a person who's very intrigued by relationship dynamics, sexuality, sensuality, how this affects us, why it's important, where we went wrong. Like all of those things have always been part of my thinking and my contemplation, actually. Very, very interesting. Why did you study transpersonal psychology? Oh, well, that's, I love this question. I love it, love it, love it. Mm-hmm. I never intended to study transpersonal psychology, but it actually happened. At some point, I realized, uh, because I, I healed myself from a very violent rape, and there was full integration. So that healing was very powerful. And post that healing, many women wanted to learn with me, even they, they didn't know my story, and they didn't mm-hmm. know anything that I was doing, they just felt that there was something different about me to learn. So I created a system. And when I created the system, I went, if I chose, I'm not going to be able to take this very far. And this is so powerful. I want to take it all the way into as far as to affect laws, to affect female medicine, etc. And so the transpersonal psychology became the most obvious degree for me to do. Uh, just because I'd studied so much Eastern philosophy, Ayurvedic medicine, Chinese medicine, like all these other types of philosophies and ideas. And I actually needed to learn how the Western mind worked because I wasn't brought up in a very typical way. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's why I went that route and transpersonal because it's also inclusive of spirit, not just your person, your body, and your personality, and your psyche, but also mm-hmm. your beliefs around spirituality. So I thought it was a well-rounded degree. <laughs> very, very interesting. You don't hear a lot of people really got into that. And I think the beauty of it, because of your background, and the fact that you were studying all this wonderful flavors of the world, I guess, that would be the best way to put it. It's like a buffet line. You were able to formulate your own thing with a very nice touch of the authentic you. Yeah, thank you. Yes, that definitely comes through the work, and it's now a body of work. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's we just, I think in life, and that's what my little book, Desire, talks about, is if we yeah. are able to follow that which we yearn for and, and really go for it, our life unfolds in a very powerful way, and it has a storyline that's hard to see when you're young, but as you move through life, you can look back and go, wow, look, these things all contributed to this thing. And it makes a very unique story. (laughs) That's true. Very true. That brings me to the question, did your childhood experiences contribute to your life's work? Absolutely. So I mentioned I grew up on the First Nation reservations, and these were Mm -hmm. some of the toughest ones um, in Manitoba, the province of Manitoba. One in particular, I think the the RCMP wouldn't even go on the reserve because it was so intense. And in this place is where I learned that what was happening outside of my home was very different. My home was very safe. I had a really great childhood. But just outside of my home, children were being abused. There was a lot of domestic violence. There was a lot of incest. There was a lot of sexual abuse, uh, alcoholism, drug use. There was a lot going on. And our house became a shelter for abused women. So I was very, very young, probably six, seven years old when this started to happen. And my mom explained in the best way she could 
what was going on so that we didn't while these strangers were coming to stay in our home. And by the time I was 12, I was already counseling a lot of these women just with explaining that what they were living through wasn't actually love, even though they said that they were loving of their partners. And so that's where it started. That There was a lot of influence there with a childlike mind, obviously, but just seeing the beauty of these human beings and their suffering and seeing what was possible if they chose to regard themselves differently. And some of them did and some of them didn't. And I remember being a teenager leading some of the women through like uh, punching the air and kicking and screaming and just getting out their, their internal rage that had never been expressed because of all the abuse. So I was very comfortable uh, as a person with these things. Uh, also, as a teenager, I would counsel my, my teenage friends. I had folders on every one of them where I would listen to all their relationship problems. So you can see already from a young age, I really loved people. I loved what, what they were going through, and I also loved providing a safe space for them to express all of that. Very, very interesting. At any time, do you feel like uh, what I want to say is that when you went through all that process, you were helping people. And you know how they say where as we help others, we help ourselves. How was that experience like going through the years as you were helping these people and then looking in the mirror? How did that help you? Uh, I love this question, too. So here's mm-hmm. what I realized. Um, the dominant amount of help was with women. And yet the dominant amount of pain that I experienced in my life in terms of betrayal, I was beaten up, I was emotionally abused a lot, um, was through women. The, the young women who were in my life, and some of them were a bit older, would always mm-hmm. pick on me and bully me. And so I had a lot to heal around relationships with women. And I think all the work that I had done, women to love themselves and take a stand for themselves and respect themselves, it it served me to apply the same to myself in my growth and my healing and my journey of um, just really understanding that those young women, you know, they didn't know any better. It Mm -hmm. it helped me uh, gain insight. It also helped me choose to open up and have really, really good girlfriends, which I do. And um, I think that was very important. Otherwise, the wounds lead us. And if the wound is in in the leadership role in our lives, we kind of create more of the same trauma. It's very important to recognize when that's happening and then to choose to let what we love, what really matters to us, lead and to then heal those wounds that used to be leading but now are in the right place (laughs) to be loved back into wholeness, as I like to say. So true. Let's talk about the hot topic, desire. I love it. How do you personally define desire? Well, desire, obviously, is very igniting. It's, it's It's something we feel in our physical bodies. If you've ever yearned for something really intensely, it's like an mm-hmm. almost like an ache. There's other ways desire shows up too. We can feel it like a tingling or heat or just almost a physical agitation. There's that element of desire. But what I realized when I really contemplated desire was that it was beyond just that. That was how it was speaking to us, like getting our attention. But what was it itself? And so I, in the book, I really take a big leap and, and imagine that 
desire is actually an emergent and evolutionary force of nature. And what I mean by that is that it has been present through all time. It would have to be for nothing to become something. It would have to be for even if you just look at human beings, for us to then go out and be daring enough to try things and to, to create what we created even in the most basic ways initially. And those desires would have evolved. As we evolved, our desires would have evolved, and they're just a little bit ahead of us so that we can keep creating and keep moving forward. And so that's where that definition, that contemplation of how did we get from, like, smashing a bunch of rocks to um, <laughs> going to the moon, you know? Right, <laughs> right, right, right. What, what was behind that? And mm-hmm. I really do believe it was desire, and that desire shows up in a multitude of different ways, which the book gets into, yeah. Wonderful. What is the difference between sensuality and sexuality? Yeah. So sensuality, everybody has senses. We, we can feel, we can smell, we can taste, we can see, you know, we can hear. So all the senses. And that's how we make sense of reality. So to me, sensuality how we make sense of reality. And when our sensuality is very awake, that means we're responsive to the different types of stimuli that are coming in. We're actually more connected to life. We're tracking it in a much better way. So actually, sensuality, if we exercise it, instead of numbing it down, actually exercise it and accentuate it, it keeps us safe because we, we can feel what's going on a lot more. This is how we survived the wilderness for so long. Mm-hmm. But there's a beautiful side as well to sensuality in that it, human beings tend to move toward the things that feel good and they move away from what doesn't feel good. And sensuality, like if something smells really bad, <laughs> you're not going to eat it. <laughs> you're not necessarily going to even touch it. You're going to move away from it, right? Which is a good right. thing. We, because mm-hmm. usually if things smell bad, they're either poisonous or they're rotting and dead or, you know, something. But if they smell good, like a fresh peach, it's like, oh my God, it's irresistible. That's also good to be drawn to it and want to eat it because it's, it's actually good for us and it's food. So I think that's how our sensuality initially developed to a really refined um, skill that we used. Mm-hmm. And now it's been numbed a little bit because we're just overstimulate a lot's going on but we actually need to reclaim sensuality it's a very very important part of being a functional human being sexuality is um for me i like to change the word to aliveness it's Mm -hmm. the sense of feeling very alive and we can feel switched on which is a good thing we want people to be switched on because if you're switched off well then you know you're not really into contributing you're just switched off you're you're either depressed or bored or shut down and don't want anything to do with life. So we want you switched on. We want you to feel a sense of intense aliveness. Now, sexuality isn't just the act of sex. I want to make that really clear. That's a portion mm-hmm. of it. But a large portion of sexuality is purely this aliveness that we're experiencing in our body. And in our culture, we do not address that. But ancient cultures did. There are many um, old traditions around the cultivation of this life force of this aliveness 
as mm-hmm. a way to create more longevity and bite in, in all of that. So that's how I define sexuality and sensuality. Fantastic. Does understanding desire contribute to feminine wisdom? Ah, uh, well, and I want to say it, it just contributes to the wisdom in general because mm-hmm. desire is not a gender issue. Desire exists in all things. So whatever you are, I mean, it even exists in nature. So if you look at it, it's, it's especially in the spring. Like spring is starting in some places. You know this, Johnny. That's why you right. take a cold shower before the show. <laughs> There's energy, right? And it's like, um, so desire, uh, being able to understand what it really is and being able to partake in it in an authentic way, in a true way, does develop wisdom for whomever, man, woman, doesn't matter how the person identifies themselves, um, mm-hmm. whomever chooses to take that on, I do believe wisdom will be developed because it must be. You learn a lot through the journey that true, authentic desire can take us on. That's true. Very true. Why did you decide to write Desire the Book? I don't think I decided, Johnny. It kind of decided to write through me. (laughs) I mean, I really (laughs) felt it. I was in in Cuba in 2014 Mm -hmm. learning to dance salsa. It was a fabulous Mm -hmm. time. But they didn't have, like, phone reception, and they didn't have Internet. I mean, you could get it, but it was, you know, pretty pathetic. So I Mm -hmm. chose to have five weeks offline and just study the dance and be in this really sensual culture and as I was there, I, I just felt like my next book is coming. And so every mm-hmm. single day I would contemplate, what would my pleasure love? That was just, the, that was the question I'd ask myself every day. And then I would journal. And to me, that was the Petri dish. It was the beginning of formulating what eventually became this sweet little book called Desire. Um, but I didn't have desire on my mind initially it was about what would my pleasure love um, was the initial question. And then mm-hmm. I realized that I really misunderstood and incredibly vilified. And yet it's the very thing that is um, a functional compass for each unique individual person. And it's incredibly important. So when we vilify it, we help ourselves of feeling confident in our own existence, feeling confident about our own contribution in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. actually very important to have a reclamation around desire. And that's why I wanted to write it, even though it was a bit of an edgy topic. And like, who am mm-hmm. I to write about desire? There's been a million books <laughs> written about it. And I felt like my perspective was actually quite unique. So mm-hmm. then I wrote it. I thought your book was fantastic. It really has the wonderful balance in terms of understanding one's desire and you explain beautifully about the fact the difference between sensuality and sexuality because sensuality we all have them people may use it as feelings gut feelings intuition and whatnot but our senses helps us whether it's a man woman thing it's our senses and then versus sexuality and you're right that's something that we can turn it on and turn it off yeah having said that how should the book be read Well, that's an intriguing question. 
there's a few, I mean, I, I think the exploration of desire, I mean, it's a small pocketbook for one, right? So you right. can live Beautifully done. Yes. you can, you can mm-hmm. sneak it into any situation. I mean, I remember being on an airplane sitting next to, it was a business um, man. He was um, the CEO of an IT company out of Tennessee, if you can imagine this. Mm-hmm. And he was so fascinated. He immediately purchased some, um, uh, Wi-Fi and went on to Amazon and, and bought it because mm-hmm. I, I actually handed him my copy and he, he started to read it. So I think mm-hmm. you can, the how, is, it's really individual how you want to read it. But one of the things I did with it, Johnny, is I created a book club. And in mm-hmm. the book club, it's all free. There's, um, there's a free playbook, which if you download it, you can actually take yourself, there's a series of questions where you can really personalize the experience of what you're reading to make it really truly like your experience of your own desire. And then there's a whole bunch of, um, you can download free meditation. So you're like, I don't know. I have an idea what my heart's desire is. Good. There's a meditation to help you connect with that, etc. And then there's a whole bunch of videos. Um, so as you read the book, there's these little pictures of these flames. And when that shows up, that means there's a video that accomplishes uh, companies that claim. And so mm-hmm. I took each of those little sections with a, a community, community who was reading the book and we would have live conversations. I recorded those conversations so that the reader could go a lot deeper and actually feel the, the quandary because there were a lot of questions that emerged for people. So they could hear that quandary and those queries and see where we went in a live format. So that's, that's really how I would read it because I like to study things very deeply and, and make them my own. Fantastic. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest for this morning is Dr. Saeda Disley. As the founder of the modern-day Jade Egg Movement, Dr. Saida inspires women to dare into their desires and claim their sexual sovereignty. We're having a conversation about her life's journey and her latest book in her global offering of the Daring Project titled Desire. Dr. Saida, how is desire like a symphony? Ah, yes. Well, here's what I understood, and see, this is true for you, Johnny. But Mm -hmm. there's different facets of life where we get turned on. So obviously the most obvious is the desire for sex. I mean, that's kind of like the most obvious because that's what people are in marketing and, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff (laughs) around that, but there's also the desire for love and we're in the month of love. This is, you know, Valentine's Mm -hmm. month and month of passion. So there, some people really deeply ache for true love, for that deep love. That's an honest and beautiful desire. Then there's the desire for procreation, right? To create a family, to start a family, to have a family. And so there's, as I went through, I I created um, six different desire songs because I was like, hmm, desire actually, it's like a symphony where there's all these different instruments that have a different sound and a different song, but when you bring them together, it's, it's, a, it's like a symphony. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that symphony is the song of our life. It's the journey of our whole life. So I like the explanation of that because there's a uniqueness to it. And then 
you can blend those songs together. So, and why I wanted to show that is it's not separate. Like maybe one day I love, but I also want, <laughs> I desire to thrive because I've not been doing very well. And then I also desire to contribute. Like it's so important to me. So those are three very different desires, but they're coexisting in a very beautiful and harmonious way in my life. And the more I express them, the more that symphony experience emerges so the song gets developed as we grow mm-hmm. into our life. Fascinating. I agree with that because life in actuality is in rhythm, so to speak. So what are the songs of desires? Yes, yeah, so I named the first three. So there's the desire for sex or eros. So that was mm-hmm. a, a very important one. And that's my longest chapter because I believe that sexuality is one of the most misunderstood parts of being a human being. And I really wanted people to understand and love this facet of themselves. So I bring forth a theory that I've developed that eros in our own life, our own erotic nature, has a maturation journey that it goes through. And I, ha- I map out five stages in journey. So that's the desire of eros. The desire for love, which is the month we're in now and just in general, so love and for family procreation, the desire to thrive, not just survive, but to thrive. That is huge, especially if we've had a lot of challenge and difficulty in life. There is something that still gets us out of bed, and that is that peace. And then there's the desire of rapture, and this is for anyone who has a spiritual calling. They want to know the deeper mysteries of life, however they choose to call it. And that's very important, it's a very strong desire. And then contribution was the, the last one, not, not last as in, in a hierarchical order, but just the last in what I present. And mm-hmm. that's incredibly important. And you see it with elderly people who feel like they, haven't, they can't contribute anymore. They kind of wilt away. If you feel like you don't matter and, and you have nothing to give anyone, there's almost no purpose to being alive. So contribution is a huge and very powerful desire. And um, I recently met someone who's in her 90s, and she, she is still ignited. Like she's so turned on. And mm-hmm. it's about global contribution at this point. And I just find that amazing, just being with her and hearing her talk. On. So, so that's how following our desire and listening to it can really inspire change, inspire growth, inspire transformation in our communities. I agree with that. I teach ballroom dancing, and I have a couple of students right now who found love in the 80s. Just wanted to kind of give you an idea. So that desire is always within us. We allow it to flame up and take care of itself in the flow of life. One thing you talk about in the book is that our desires can get hijacked. Tell us a little bit about that. Ooh, yeah, this is where the book gets really interesting. <laughs> and so, so I came up with this because I realized, why is desire being vilified so much? Why is it the great enemy of most religions and philosophies? At the end of the day, human suffering is related back to desire. Why? Mm-hmm. What is that? I think it's wrong. I think it's essentially wrong, but why is it wrong? And then what, here's what I realized. 
Desire as a force of nature is ambivalent, like all forces of nature, right? Gravity doesn't care what kind of day you're having. <laughs> the sun doesn't care what kind of day you're there. So forces of nature are ambivalent. That is desire. But what happens is, say, let's take desire for sexuality because that's the most obvious on, on people's minds. Um, so desire for sex. There is, it's a true, organic, natural, and powerful force for very obvious reasons in terms of biology. But that gets hijacked a lot. And by hijacked, what I mean is we learn very early in our childhood um, how to behave around our own bodies, our own pleasure, our own sexuality. We learn very quickly what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. And so there's this social ideal and social mandates that are placed upon a very authentic desire called sexual desire. Um, and then there's, it's layered and layered with all these social mandates, social behaviors, social conditions, social ideals, and that's how I get hijacked. So now I suddenly believe if I'm a young teenager and I'm watching a lot of hip-hop videos, that I need to dress a certain way in order to fit in, and I need to behave a certain way with my sexuality in order to be a cool, you know, hip person. And that's when my natural tendency to yearn for sex gets hijacked by what everybody else believes, how I should do it, when I should do it, what it should look like, with whom it should be with, and that gets hijacked. So I was like, wow, this is really important. And the more I looked at it, the more it became true for me in mm -hmm. all of the areas of desire, whether it's with children or, or religion or contribution, et cetera. So the important part for any of the readers is to lean in to that possibility. And then there's a moment of reclamation where you're like, well, wait a second. Actually, that's not true for me. I know that's the way everybody else is or so I believe, because of, you know, TV mm -hmm. and media. But here's what's actually true for me. So I saw this as an example. I went into a fairly community where um, people were more polyamorous in their orientation. But as I discussed things on an individual basis, I learned that for some people in that community, that actually wasn't a comfortable choice. But they didn't seem to think that they had an option because they belonged to this community. So you can see what would appear to be, say, like a liberated and open sexual community, even within that, the social mandates, the ideals of the, the community were overriding the originality and truth of the individual. And that's why I bring up hijacking, because it's, it's um, something we need to pay attention to, and it's mm -hmm. something we can claim our power around very quickly if we're aware that it's happening. You also talk about leadership and so forth. So what do you mean by embodied leadership? Ah, yes. For me right now, there's, as we can see, there's a lot of problems with, there's a lot of issues with leaders, a lot of things going on with leaders. So leadership in some ways seems to be not as clear. It seems to be crumbling, change, and transformation happening. So as I pulled out kind of eagle's eye view, I'm like, what's actually going on here? One of the things I realized, and this is through the sovereignty pieces that um, I work with, and Johnny, we and I already talked about that last year, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but individuals are now 
I believe the reason leadership is falling apart is the way that it's currently constructed is not evolutionary. It needs to evolve. It's kind of reached its peak experience, and now something else needs to come forward. And that something else, in part, is that individuals start to claim leadership of their own lives. So that's one piece. But the embodied leadership piece, we're still going to have leaders that we look to. The ones who really live and walk their talk, I think are the ones who are going to survive all this chaos that's going on around leadership. And the ones who just, you know, just say pretty things or promise all these things, but behind our backs aren't actually living that or it's not true for them, etc. It's just... Uh-huh. an ideal based on whatever policies they're wanting to bring forward, those leaders are going to have a lot harder time because I think humanity in general is a little bit over the BS and we're really wanting to know what's true for ourselves. And we want to follow, if we are going to follow anyone, something that has substance. So embodied leadership has a lot of substance. It's trustable because, for example, if we're all stuck in a forest and there happens to be a person who understands the forest is a wilderness guide and totally gets how to survive there, who's going to lead the group in that moment? The, the guy who's most embodied in the thing, right? Right. <laughs> if we're now uh, maybe in, in the ballroom dance situation, because you're a leader in that sense, who are we mm-hmm. going to follow? The person who watched a few ballroom videos online? or the person who's been dancing for a really long time. Right. So that's what embodied leadership is. It's in you, Johnny, you embodied dance so deeply that, that that's what's leading people more than your words and the classes. Mm-hmm. It's what mm-hmm. you've now embodied. And I think that's really crucial as we're going through difficulty with leadership and as we're transforming how we want this world to function. That's true, because they are leaders and then they're leaders. They are teachers, and then they are yes. teachers. So I agree with you as far as that's concerned. Yes. One of the things that you talk about is, and this is interesting, isn't referring to your spouse, partners, and significant other as my better half. Isn't it being humble? Ah, yeah, I take issue with that. <laughs> but but it's, <laughs> it's, um, I don't see it as being humble. What I see it mm-hmm. is that, that it's actually conditioning, that somewhere, mm-hmm. somehow, we are taught that we're not complete in our own selves and we will become complete when we meet that other half. And it's like the, the better half. Mm -hmm. So everyone's looking outside of themselves for something better than themselves to complete themselves. So what does that say about how we think about ourselves? I Mm -hmm. know it's a really sweet saying and I know it has sweet intent, Mm -hmm. but I think it would be more interesting to approach relationship from a place where I feel deep respect and love and uh, friendship with myself. And I'm looking to celebrate and share that with someone else who has that same depth of respect and regard for themselves. And then mm-hmm. we're not each other's quote unquote better halves. We're, we're complete and we, we kind of get to add to the abundance. And because what happens, Johnny, I I talk about this as the beggar's bowl, is Mm -hmm. that if for some reason our partner suddenly wants to do something else or or like isn't 
focus entirely on us for a small period of time. And we've entered this relationship already insecure because we're not complete. Mm-hmm. What we then end up doing is we bargain for love. We give away things that are really important to us just to keep love around. So something that seems so sweet to say has a lot of uh, kind of social mandates hidden behind the sweetness, if that makes sense. So that's why I, I find it um, a challenge for, for me to use those terms. Kind of like I, I don't believe that my partner is my better half. If anything, mm-hmm. he's a fantastic whole being that I get to play with. How fun right. is that? <laughs> right. Right. Um, and so that's, that's my view on that. And I know that, that you know, it's, it's a commonly used term and um, that's where I take issue with it because I constantly see people in the beggar's role when they're relating. I understand. So basically you didn't watch Jerry Maguire then, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> I did not. See, I mean, that's the Most whole idea. My, right. You complete me. Most and of, of course, learning. the other person have to say, you got me right. at hello. Right. That's it. Right. Well, that's sweet and it's, it's romantic and uh-huh. problematic um, because of what I just said. People will yeah. bargain away things that are really important to them because they feel that they're their own. And mm-hmm. so now suddenly there's a fear of the, or losing or they'll leave me, etc. Because of this incompleteness that we walk around with. So I, th- I think it's sweet. I think it's very romantic. And I think we can play with that, obviously, you know, for feeling confident. We understand all that. We can definitely play with that. But, but here's the thing, Johnny. I think that a lot of us culturally don't understand how indoctrinated we are into these ideas that we're not whole onto ourselves, that desire is bad. And like all right. these little things that we just take for granted that actually shape our culture and our behaviors. I agree with that. You hit it right on the nose because one of the things that I talk about is that you have to be a one, which is you complete yourself. And the other person is a one, they complete themselves. True partnership, whether it's synergy in terms of business or personal relationship, one plus one equals three. Not one plus one equals right. two or half plus half because one, you have something special. That person has something special like you were talking about. We found each other. Fantastic. Let's create something that we cannot create by ourselves. And that three exactly. is what the magnificence of the partnership is all about, whether it's in business or in personal relationship. Yes, I love that you said that. Synergy is definitely the beauty that can emerge when mm-hmm. we're in, as you said, it's not just romantically, it can, can be in friendship, can be in business and really understanding this is the amazing thing. We're, we're, we're not, we're interdependent. We're mammals. We, we mm-hmm. are independent as individuals, but there's something powerful to admit actually we're interdependent. I wouldn't be able to have my breakfast this morning if there wasn't a farmer who was like doing, you know, cultivating the food and, like there's all these different aspects to life that all these human beings have assisted to make amazing. That's mm-hmm. the genius of that, and that's the interdependence of that. So, yeah, thank you for, for bringing that up. 
Wonderful. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. Our podcasts are available on Apple's iTunes, Stitches Radio, Blueberry Podcasting, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. My guest is Dr. Saida Disley. As the founder of the modern-day Jade Egg Movement, Dr. Saida inspires women to dare into their desires and claim their sexual sovereignty. We're having a conversation about her life's journey and her latest book in her global offering of the daring project titled Desire. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Dr. Saida, let's talk about this. It's in your book. Which do you prefer, sexual tension or sexual resolution? Ah, well, you already know the answer. (laughs) I actually prefer the tension. Mm -hmm. And because I want all the listeners to remember, if it was a great first kiss, obviously, if it wasn't, it might not be a good memory. But for me, (laughs) my first kiss. And the first kiss, I don't just mean like first, first ever in your life. It's the first kiss with your beloved partner, for example. Mm -hmm. Before you kiss, you've never kissed. And you're like, wow, I really want to kiss this person. And there's tricity. And as you realize that there's going to be a kiss, that electricity goes up even more. And then as you're leaning in, it's almost like there's sparks flying between your mouth and their mouth. And you're not there yet. And there's all this aliveness. To mm-hmm. me, that moment, that moment, that hypercharged moment is so precious because it's rare. And it's so delicious that I actually prefer to extend that moment because I just find uh, it's, like I said, very rare. It's not because mm-hmm. first kisses don't happen all the time, <laughs> right? You have first kiss and then you're going to have a second kiss. It's going to be different. Um, so sexual tension is beautiful. And why I like it, and as you know, I teach, um, I have over eight programs to help women mm-hmm. really grow and evolve and claim their sexuality. And so within that, there's a learning process of let's be okay with being turned on and let's be conscious enough to make good choices. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we're going to be turned on in what I would call like an inappropriate moment. It's not appropriate. Maybe it's with a person we don't know or maybe it's a person we know but we really shouldn't be having this Mm -hmm. kind of turn on right now maybe it's our boss or maybe our best friend's partner like it's kind of like one of those edgy places Mm -hmm. and so what do we do with that if we just go to sexual resolution we have all the problems we're currently seeing right Mm -hmm. there's a lot of problems with with uh, betrayals and lack of trust and abuse but if we can hold on to the tension and not shame ourselves and then make a conscious choice what we essentially do is we allow ourselves to feel the turn on, which is enlivening, and then we round in ourselves that that's it. That's, that's, this is as far as this is going to go. We, we let ourselves be enlivened, <laughs> and then we make a different choice. That is the lacking in our society. We have not gifted people with the knowledge and the insights, we ha- and this should be introduced at a very young age, that mm-hmm. we actually can have control. We can choose. We have choice when turn on arises. We actually have choice. And that's what sexual tension is about. And it's understanding how to play with it, 
so that we can become really conscious and creative around it and make really good choices that we don't regret. And for me, um, this emerged out of, because I was brought up in a very specific way, my parents um, deeply love each other. They were brought up with a lot of religion, so they chose not to pass that on to me. So I grew up very intact Mm -hmm. around my own body and my pleasure. But they also taught me really strong boundaries. So that, that was, I see it lacking in our culture. We have all this influence around turn on, turn on, turn on. And then we don't teach responsibility around the turn on. Hmm. We encourage turn on, but we don't teach the responsibility. And so that's the idea of sexual tension for me is let's cultivate that. Let's learn how to be masters of that so we can have a safer more essentially erotically con- um, society. Um, that's why I'm a lover of sexual tension, and it's fun. It's absolutely fun. I really like feeling lit up by life and not having to do a thing about it. <laughs> <laughs> Does that mean that we have to live a zombie life? No. No, no, no. So <laughs> let's define zombie, and I love the word, right, because it's the living yeah. dead. Here you are, you're alive, but you're dead. You're, you're, you're not, your sensuality is completely numb and shut down. So you're actually not seeing the beautiful colors in the sunrise. You're not smelling roses, so to speak. You're not tasting your food and letting that ignite you. The sensuality is turned off. So that's a huge deadness already. And then you're just going through the motions. You're living someone else's idea of what you should be living. So now you're not inspired. You're not actually even there when you're at work. You're just going, it's like everything's a habit. This is the living dead to me. Mm -hmm. The way to to not be a zombie, to come claim lives, to lead our lives, to um, be the the co-created designers. And why I mean by co-created is I actually think there's – that we're, we don't understand the mystery of life. So there's a part of us that be in direct relationship with that mystery and co-create with it. When mm-hmm. I feel desire, it's, you know, say I, the, the desire to write this book, for example. It didn't exist, this book. I felt a desire. I pursued it. And then I kept doing what was obvious. Well, I need to write first. Okay, now I'm at this stage. Now I need to do this. Now I need to do that, Right. So that's the journey of co-creating with something I didn't necessarily understand, which is the mystery. Then we become alive, and then we're not those zombies anymore. But there's a lot of zombies, and that's sad Mm -hmm. to me. So part of the book is to wake up our daring nature, is to have the disease of apathy. Apathy is, I think, one of the greatest evils planet. It's destroying (laughs) us. So we need to burst out of that. And so that's, I'm so happy you brought up, I'm glad you addressed that. Not a lot of people want to touch that question. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. That's wonderful. When we talk about sexuality, sexual tension, sexual resolution, where does making love fit into the equation? Yes. So, um, well, that's the conscious choice, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in my, um, say, in my relationship, if you've been in a long-term relationship, things can flatline. Mm-hmm. This is how, what people talk about all the time. 
So how do you keep juice? How do you keep the passion? How do you stay interested? You have to build the sexual tension. You can't mm-hmm. just spend your whole life like, here I feel turned on. My partner's not turned on. I'm not going to force them to have sex with me, so that's important. Right. And I need to build the sexual tension so that there can be interest. And when there's enough of that tension and both of us have the desire to connect, now there's a space for conscious lovemaking, which is really gorgeous and I think really crucial to leading a healthy, vibrant, expressed life as a human being. So there's definitely space for that. And as we progress in a dedicated relationship, it is actually on us to make that important, that lovemaking remain important. And I know that in my family, my inheritance, my grandfather, um, his girlfriend shared later that even on the day that he passed, they still Mm -hmm. made love and -hmm. they would make love often. And he was in his eighties. And, um, and I thought, how wonderful is that, that, that lovemaking, sexuality, aliveness, there is no age to it. So if, there, if, if we've been shamed through ageism, we need to discard that. I actually do a lot of talks on sexuality and ageism because mm-hmm. it's incredibly harmful. And we, we spread this weird idea that if you're with someone for a long time, it gets boring. That somehow we need to be with a lot of new and different people in order to uh, keep things exciting. And, but the truth to that is, we can create the excitement if we're intentional, if we cultivate it, if we make it important. And it really is important because it's one of the ways that human beings, um, intimacy is very nourishing to our hearts, to our soul, to our essence. And feeling deeply connected and safe and expressed with an individual is a very powerful experience. Is that why we need to know our desire song? Yes. Absolutely. It's one of the ways. And, and it may, at times it may be for love, you know, at times it may be for sex and mm-hmm. contribution, but to know it, it, imagine this, Johnny, that you currently right now have a whole symphony percolating in your being. Mm-hmm. And you finally start to turn your attention to it, to listen and you start to get curious. You're like, what's that? And then you start saying yes to it and you follow mm-hmm. your yes. And you follow it in such a way that it has integrity with yourself. You're not doing things that are out of integrity for you. You're going to feel more alive. And because of that, because you're switched on, anyone who comes in contact with you is going to experience that from you and probably get mm-hmm. switched on too, right? Because a lot right. of people are interesting to be around, <laughs> <laughs> they really are. They're fascinating. They're exciting. They're inspiring. So yes, knowing our desire song is a way that we can contribute more to our families, our communities, and the world at large. I agree. Very true. Please tell us about your global community for women called the Daring Project. Oh, beautiful. You know, I formed this community um, it was a little bit before the Me Too movement happened, but I realized that right now in the world, there, women need safe places to express everything. And what I mean by everything is literally everything. They need to be able to express all their rage and their anger and their fears and and the, everything. 
as well as their turn on and their edge, scary things that they don't ever want to say. They need a safe place to do that. So the Daring Project, it's curated. So um, we just make sure that, you know, who, who are these people? <laughs> it, <laughs> it is a membership, and that's, that's intentional. The membership is intentional um, so that the people who are there, we're all there in agreement to look at each other with deep respect. No mm-hmm. one's there to fix anybody. Um, everyone's encouraged to lean in, well, what does it mean to me as a person? And mm-hmm. so what I do is I'll often bring forth difficult subjects, for example, and we'll explore them together. And then everyone gets to have an opinion and share what that meant for them. Or sometimes women will come forth and say, oh, my God, I just had this experience out in my relationship or in the world, and it was really – and they bring it to the group where we can give them reflection and insights um, and so we grow and learn together and women are getting more and more daring. And by being more and more daring, what that means is they're actually living life more and more on their own terms. And what that means is they're more joyful. They're more confident. They actually like their themselves. And that's exciting to me, Johnny, because I think if we just get that baseline in society mm-hmm. where we can like ourselves, just, just that, just like like ourselves we've massively shifted uh, an industry that profits off our insecurities. Right. Mm -hmm. We've now suddenly changed it because if I like myself and you're trying to sell me something by telling me I'm not likable, I'm I'm (laughs) not going to be putting my money there. Right. 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 Now we're forcing industry to change and go, well, okay. So if we, we have a society like themselves, now what? What do we do? Oh, we actually need to appeal to their intelligence. We need to appeal to their create, creative side. We need to appeal to their, they want to be more vital, not because they're less, but because they actually enjoy the experience. And so we start to change um, where we spend money and how, how we speak. So it actually has a lot of repercussions, just simply liking ourselves, not to mention that it's more fun to be with ourselves. <laughs> So true. Where can someone go to get more information about you, your books, and courses, and keep up with your latest happenings? Perfect. I think I'm going to give two URLs. Mm -hmm. One is very easy. It's for the book. DesireTheBook. DesireTheBook.com. And so that will give you all the different links if you want uh, an audio book or a Kindle or a physical book. It's all there. We even have links where the shipping is a lot less if you're purchasing from a foreign country, for example. So desirethebook.com. And then to find out more about me, dareyourdesire.com is my site. And for the ladies who might be curious about the Daring Project, the first month is actually free, so you can try it and see if you like it. It's the Daring Project. Dot com, the daring project.com. So Fantastic. that would be amazing. I would love to continue to support your listeners. And Johnny, I always just really love connecting <laughs> with you. I love your joy, your curiosity. You're a lot of fun. And I love that it really feels like this is the food for the soul. We're really nurturing mm-hmm. our hearts in these conversations. Wonderful. What is next for you? What's next for me right now? I'll be looking at doing a, a TEDx talk on desire. 
So um, putting that together, yeah, I, I, it's going to be something like the naked truth about desires. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then I'm also leading uh, a group of women into the wilderness of Africa. So I do these mm-hmm. safaris every year for women. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very exciting. That's what's coming up next for me. Yeah. Fantastic. By the way, we're coming close to the end of the hour since our show is about people, family, and living life. Would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Yes. It's a very simple one. Um, I want to invite the listeners today, start to notice how you make sense of reality through your sensuality. Start to pay attention. Maybe there's one sense in particular that's stronger than the rest. So, for example, maybe it's your sense of smell and gift yourself the gift today of smelling things that are delicious, maybe like a cinnamon bun or beautiful coffee or a flower and really let the experience of those smells touch you very deeply. Or if it's visual, uh, looking at something beautiful and allowing the beauty to touch your heart. This is a way that we can give ourselves small little gifts throughout the day that are very simple. They don't cost anything because it's, it's part of our nature to pay attention and feed our souls through beauty that comes into all the different senses. Fantastic. That's beautiful. I love the recipe. Dr. Thais, I thank you for the great recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mom's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning February 12th, in keeping with the Valentine's Day theme, my guest will be Ayo Fashola. She is a style coach, feminine leadership consultant, and the founder of The Sensuous Siren. Ayo and me will be having a conversation about her life's journey and her mission to help women cultivate and express their femininity and sensuality with confidence to attract love, luck, and financial success through her three steps signature program, Style Your Star. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Dr. Saida, it has been a true pleasure. Happy Valentine's Day to you and your loved ones, and thank you again. Have a blessed day. Thank you, Johnny. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Some regions are vast and empty, other areas we call closets. Fortunately, Kevin from the Container Store has answers. Hmm, right. Kevin, what gives you the power over space? I'd say Alpha Customizable Closets. With free design and Alpha's adjustable shelving and drawers, I can create space in any size closet. Kevin, master of space and closets. Or just Kevin. Plus, right now, save 30% on Alpha and installation and earn up to $500 in credit through February 10th. At the Container Store, where space comes from. Where is that music coming from?
Space. Some regions are vast and empty. Other areas we call closets. Fortunately, Kevin from the Container Store has answers. Hmm, right. Kevin, what gives you the power over space? I'd say Alpha Customizable Closets. With free design and Alpha's adjustable shelving and drawers, I can create space in any size closet. Kevin, master of space and closets. Or just Kevin. Plus, right now, save 30% on Alpha and installation and earn up to $500 in credit through February 10th. At the Container Store, where space comes from. Where is that music coming from?